Please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We'll be picking up in verse 38 and going all the way through verse 50 in our exposition of the Gospel of Mark. Mark, chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. Please join with me in prayer once again. Father, we come before thee once again. We thank thee for the opportunity to hear thy word read, to sing praises unto thee, to sing thy word back to thee in the Psalter. We thank thee, O God. We can gather, receive these means of grace. Pray, God, that there would be an increase to all of us by thy spirit, that faith would be granted for their measures of love for thy son, Jesus Christ, be granted and that, O oh, Jesus, we might love thee and see thee more. Lord, we pray, as we now come to preach thy word, that would help me, this poor minister, to preach this everlasting gospel. Help me to interpret it correctly, to do no disservice to thy son, Jesus, in my proclamation. Holy Spirit, guide me. And Lord, I pray for all of us, as we sit under the word preached, myself included, that we would be moved to receive it. Lord, that thou wouldst work in our hearts, apply it to our hearts, our minds, give us strength, comfort. Thou knowest all of our individual needs, O God. May this word be fitting in season to each of us. Pray, O God. Lord, that we would see thee more, we would love thee more, we'd have more love for our brethren, we'd have more love for thee. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title of our sermon is Party Spirits in Christ's Church. Party Spirits in Christ's Church. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. Hear now the word of the Lord. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And he followeth us not. And we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part and is for us. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire which never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, and to the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye, than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. 
Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it. Dear congregation, from our passage, we may draw out a few characteristics of Christ's church. Namely, that the church of Jesus Christ is made up universally and visibly of all those that profess the name of Jesus, who demonstrate faith toward God and works of mercy toward their fellow man, who are at times and places more or less pure, as our confession says, and are also being at times less pure, sometimes even afflicted with infighting, with division and disunity. This last characteristic is a sad one indeed, that characteristic of infighting, division, and disunity in Christ's church. It's sad that the body of Christ would bite and devour itself. That the blood-bought members of the church of Jesus should, rather than dwell together in unity, rebel against their Lord who purchased them and labor to undo his work and will for his bride. Paul tells us that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross in Colossians 1.20. This is not only peace between the elect and God, it is that, but also peace between all the elect members of Christ, that is, peace between Christians. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, quote, Christ not only prayed for peace, but also bled for peace. Christ suffered on the cross that he might cement Christians together with his blood. As he prayed for peace, so he also paid for peace, end quote. Now, Mark has spent nine chapters, and all of chapter nine specifically, especially verses 30 through 37, demonstrating Christ's instruction to his disciples that their thoughts are not to be divided, tossed to and fro, concerned about which of them shall be greatest, have the greatest rank in his kingdom, but rather that all of their hearts, minds, souls should be unified upon Christ himself, that they should unify around the goal of imitating Christ in his meekness, in his humility, and in his kind reception of sinners. That was specifically the last lesson he taught them in verses 30 through 37. The disciples' hearts are to be set on the glory that Christ shall have in his coming kingdom. Not what glory they shall have. Mm. Not, what, not who they are or who they shall be, but who Christ is and shall be proclaimed, revealed, demonstrated to be. Yet here in our passage, we see a party spirit. A party spirit. That is, that mischievous and unchristian tendency to set limitations, to set delineations on the body of Christ that he has not put upon her. That's what I mean by saying party spirit, which is the same way that the Puritans meant a party spirit, party-mindedness. To set mischievous and unchristian limitations and delineations on the body of Christ that he himself has not put 
upon her. Such a spirit, such a spirit as this one, gives unholy allegiance to a party, a sect of Christ's church, if you will, over the Christ of the church. Unholy allegiance to a sect or a party of Christ's church rather than the Christ of the church. It is more concerned with denying and affirming what it means to follow Jesus than it is with actually following Jesus. To bring it to our times, it is a spirit that absorbs itself in disputes, questions, and debates of secondary and tertiary matters, rather than focusing on those great themes, those great and main themes of Christianity that we have talked about so often. Spurgeon put it like this, quote, They serve, and they think it is Christ they are serving, but in fact, it is their own denomination or little church that they are serving. They would be almost vexed to hear of God's being honored among any other sort of Christians than themselves. They hope there will be a revival, true, but they would like it to be pretty nearly confined to the walls of their own little chapel. They serve a clique, not Christ. Their sympathies never go beyond the particular section of the church to which they belong. And they are rather moved by emulation to see their own opinions dominant than by zeal for the glory of God. End quote. That's what Charles Spurgeon said about this party spirit. Dear congregation, the danger and the wickedness of such a party spirit cannot be overstated. Cannot be overstated. It harms It devours and destroys those for whom Christ Jesus shed his precious blood. It cannot do anything else but divide. It cannot do anything else but divide and subdivide and subdivide the church. Until it presumes that the only true members of Christianity can fit into one accord. That is one Honda Accord, not be in one accord. Worst of all, it damages and brings dishonor to the name of Christ. Worst of all, our convictions, dear congregation, let us hold them. Let us hold our convictions. The purity of religion, the purity of religion, let it be fought for, even through controversy, if need be. But a controversial spirit Let us denounce and demolish. In our text, let us see, number one, the party spirit rebuked. This party spirit rebuked. And that's where we will spend most of our time this afternoon. Number two, the party spirit remedied. The party spirit remedied. And third, the true Christian spirit exalted. The true Christian spirit exalted. First, this party spirit rebuked. Rebuked. We see this in verses 38 through 42. Let us remember the context. Let us remember the context. Jesus had just rebuked, had just corrected his poor, misguided disciples for their wicked dispute over which of them should be the greatest in his kingdom. Which one of us will be the greatest? Through both instruction and demonstration, taking that little child In their midst, Jesus had shown them that the glory of his kingdom does not, for the Christian, consist of rank 
but of service. Not of highness, but of humility. Not of might, but of meekness. Not in reigning as a ruler over others, but in receiving from God as a child. Their concern, that is the concern of Christians, is not to be their own glory, but Christ's. As soon as this lesson had ended, though, we see John respond to Jesus in verse 38 saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. Not without reason, if you recall, is John named by Jesus a son of thunder, Bonarges, son of thunder, not only for his boldness in thundering forth the truth of the gospel against heretics later on in 1st or 3rd John, but also for his foolish and ignorant tendencies toward hot-headedness and short temperament. It was he, if you recall, looked at this last week, and his brother who went to Jesus asked to have the best places, the highest ranks in the kingdom of heaven. One on his left, one on his right. It was he and his brother who thundered against the Samaritans, offering to call down fire from heaven upon them for the rejection of the gospel. Apparently not recalling what Jesus had said in John 3.17, that Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Thanks for the insight, but I'm not going to have you call down fire. How like our Lord Jesus Christ, though, dear congregation, when we think about John, how like our Lord Jesus Christ to make the most temptuous disciple into the most tender disciple, into the beloved disciple, one who before time clapped as the thunder, now whispers as the breeze. Let us recall what Christ has made us as well. Let us recall what Christ has made us. What is it, dear believer, that you once were, that our precious Savior has redeemed? Angry? Jealous? Lustful? Divisive? Contrarian? Proud? Hateful? Envious? Whatever it may have been, the Scriptures tell us, such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And here in our passage, this son of thunder, John, still a babe in the school of Christ indeed. Despite the rebuke of Jesus that we had just seen in verses 30 through 37, carries on in his self-glorifying and proud state of mind taking upon him a party spirit. A party spirit. Here in Capernaum, this is where they are right now, here in Capernaum, he and some of the other disciples apparently came across a man performing exorcisms in the name of Jesus. But because the man did not travel from place to place with Jesus, and as John and the other disciples did, it was assumed that this man could not be a true child of God, a true disciple of God of Christ, a true believer in Jesus. This man may have been one of John the Baptist's faithful disciples or a convert to Christ from some other earlier point in Christ's ministry or was converted to Christ during the first missionary journey that Jesus sent the 70 disciples out on. He could have been a convert from any one of those things. But of what sect, if you will, this man was 
from makes little difference. What we know of the man is that he was a man of faith who was taking part in the advancement of Christ's kingdom, taking ground from Satan for Jesus Christ. And yet, here's John denouncing him, denouncing him. Now, the order of events in the context, dear congregation, is of great interest, of great interest. As though Jesus had said, none of ye, my disciples, shall concern yourselves with rank, rather with loving one another. Well enough, responds John, but surely we who walk with thee from place to place, who belong to this sect, are at least superior to these others who do not belong to our sect. This, at the very least, must be true, Jesus, that while not better than one another, we are certainly better than they. Ah, a loophole. Such thinking is divisive. It's a great sin. A great sin. To use Paul's figure of speech, it hacks off the foot from the body, points to it and says, this, this, and this only is the body of Christ. Nothing else is part of the true church than this here foot. Given time, though, we know, given time, such a party spirit, if it's allowed to fester in the heart, a toe shall eventually be cut from the foot, and the same shall be said of it, then a toenail. As Richard Sibbs puts it, factions always breed factions. The Puritan Francis Raworth said, quote, O Lord, if a man's apostate were thy apostate, and a man's heretic thy heretic, and a man's reprobate always thy reprobate, election to eternal life would prove but a fable, and all the world would be damned. End quote. That is, if God was as stringent, dear congregation, as stringent in determining who belonged to him as we sometimes are, then there should be no true Christians at all, should there? John and those who adopt the same sectarian spirit with him are like Joshua, who told Moses to forbid Eldad and Medad from prophesying in the camp. What was the response that Joshua received, though? In Numbers 11, 28 and 29, we read, Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Are you jealous for me? Are you concerned about me? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. That's the response Joshua got from Moses. That great prophet, Moses, foreshadowed the true prophet, our Lord Jesus. And our Lord Jesus, the true prophet, says to John in response in verses 39 and 40, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part, is for us. This man this guy who's casting out demons, Capernaum, was doing good in the name of Jesus and for his kingdom. He shall not be denounced by Christ, no matter how bad John wishes it to be so. Many converts of Christ stayed in their hometowns. Because we might be thinking, as I did when I first approached this passage some time ago, I thought, well, it makes sense. They're not following Jesus, and these disciples are, so there must be something wrong with them. Well, no. Many of the converts of Christ stayed in their hometowns, sometimes even being commanded by Jesus not to follow him, as we recall in chapter 5 with the demoniac. They did not follow him from place to place. They stayed in their towns. They stayed in their homes. Well, John took this as a reason to what? Assume factions. Assume sectarian 
nature, to assume parties. Those who went with Jesus, in his mind, who went with Jesus and the twelve, and those who did not. Those are the two parties. One party truly belonged to Jesus, John, and the others. The other only pretended to. But Jesus, once again, kindly shows John and the rest of the disciples their folly, saying, Whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. That is, all those who serve and love you as brothers, doing good to you for my sake, show that they love me and are my disciples just as well as you are. For they have the sign of my disciples, love for their brethren, and they shall never lose their reward just as you will not. And whosoever, he continues, shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, that is biting and devouring at them, pretending to cut them off from my body, returning evil for the good they give, casting doubt on their faith in me, and causing them to stumble. What does Jesus say about that? That it's better for that person who causes these little ones who believe in him to stumble, for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. That is, he's behaving Such a one who does such a thing, who's sectarian and and condemns to hell believers that Jesus bought with his blood, he acts like the son of Satan. He behaves as a son of Satan, an accuser of the brethren, rather than as a son of God, a lover of the brethren. He should count the costs of his ungodly and destructive behavior, lest he find himself destroyed by the same destruction he's bringing upon others in the church. We must see, dear congregation, that religious intolerance among Christians, talking about religious intolerance among Christians, is a great sin. It's a sin. Jesus puts forward the virtue of Christian religious tolerance in this passage. While denouncing religious intolerance among those who profess to be his disciples. However, this religious tolerance which Jesus puts forward, is not a flimsy ecumenism, undefined and unsturdy mere Christianity, where any and every belief is accepted as long as it comes from a professing Christian. That's not what's being talked about here by me nor by Christ. That's not what Christian religious tolerance is. Rather, a Christian religious tolerance is a strong, masculine, robust conscientious and well-defined toleration for difference of opinion in secondary and tertiary matters of faith, which flows out of a spirit of true Christian love and charity. That's the kind of religious tolerance we are discussing. It is a toleration that allows for necessary controversy, that is debate, over secondary matters, but the debate happening between those two parties, those two sects, those two denominations, embraces one another with the arms of Christian fellowship, love, and charity. Dear congregation, we must see the danger of religious intolerance among Christians, of adopting a party spirit that relishes controversy more than truth. How apt Some of us are to this, myself included. The more you study, the more you love doctrine. How easy it is to fall into this, this religious intolerance that values controversy more than truth. 
Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, we recall, telling them that they were acting as unbelievers, operating from the fruits of the flesh. How were they doing that? Well, they were indulging sectarian views, having a divisive, controversial party spirit. Some of them saying they were Paul's followers, Paulites. Others were saying that they were of Apollos' denomination. Others were Peterists. He writes to them in 1 Corinthians 3.3, Ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? That's what he has to say to them. Although they were members of different congregations in the city of Corinth, the region of Corinth, though they had been planted by separate ministers even, yet they were all one in Christ, Paul says. Members of one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Yet they were behaving as though Christ himself were divided. Dear congregation, especially as Reformed believers, especially as Reformed believers living in 2021 with access to the internet, let us be aware of this dangerous, dangerous party spirit. We know that Christians of all branches and denominations of Christ's church are sometimes apt to think that no good can be done in the world unless it is done by their own party, their own denomination, those who hold to their own confession. But this is to be so narrow-minded as to be unable to conceive of the possibility even of serving Christ in any other way than that which is followed by us. This is what we see here with John. Those who embrace such a divisive, unchristian, and dangerous party spirit, J.C. Ryle says this about, they, quote, make an idol of their own peculiar ecclesiastical machinery and can see no merit in any other. I have a shovel. It's the only thing that can ever be used to do anything outside. True Christian religious tolerance, dear believers, must not be misconstrued. Must not be misconstrued. Truth is settled and firm. The Bible says something. It says something. And it means what it says. God has not stuttered in speaking to us. The doctrines of the Bible are truly there in the text, given to us by God. And they must be believed, taught, and defended. We must know what we believe and believe what we know. That is true. However, we must avoid the tendency of thinking that all who believe differently than us on secondary matters are not Christian or are not faithful Christians. Mm. I can hear the response. I've had it before. Ah, but pastor, this is a fight for religious purity. Religious purity. The purity of religion. That truth would be taught. We would not allow error to come in. Are you saying it's okay for error to come in? Are you implying that the Bible is unclear as to what is true and what is untrue. There's no one who is right. Everyone sees truth as they see it and it's just all okay and we're postmodern now. And that we can't even have a true understanding even of secondary matters. Is that what you're saying, dear pastor? God forbid that I should ever say such a thing. Of course not. God forbid that we should say such a thing. But this does not make, then therefore, every secondary issue a primary issue. It does not make, then, therefore, every secondary issue into a primary issue. It is good that we, Reformed believers, have confessions, 
have catechisms, have creeds that we have inherited from our forefathers. We thank God that in his providence, he has brought us such documents and placed them into our hands. We praise God that these documents aid us in what? Being confident, not only in regard to the primary doctrines, but also in regard to secondary doctrines. But those who differ with us on those secondary matters cannot by us be cut off from the body of Christ, lest while being zealous to defend the truth and to sift the wheat from the chaff at the mill, we find ourselves to have now been caught up with our neck caught up in the rope of the millstone, stumbling backwards into the sea. That's what will happen to us. Those who firmly hold to the main themes of Christianity, what are those main themes? The Trinitarian nature of God's being, the divinity of Christ, and salvation by grace through faith in a propitiatory sacrifice of redemption done by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Those who believe such things, hold to those things, and extend the right hand of fellowship to us, dear congregation, ought to be embraced as brothers, though walking not with us in all particulars. As the great Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs himself said, quote, Articles or rules for doctrine or practice and matters of religion to be imposed upon men, think of a catechism, a confession, statement of faith, should be what? As few as possible. As few as possible. He continues, there is a very great danger in the unnecessary multiplying of them. End quote. That's from Jeremiah Burroughs, which if you know anything about that Puritan age, Jeremiah Burroughs reigns as king among many. Baptists ought not to devour pedo-baptists, or vice versa. Our confessions and creeds must be seen as they were intended. I think some people have such a misunderstanding of the creeds and confessions. They think that they're trying to limit. We must see them as they truly are, as being written and intended to be as broad and as Catholic as possible and as narrow as is helpful and necessary to the right worship of God. That's why they were written. Christian, do you have a party spirit? Do you have a tendency to a party spirit? Do you have a tendency to cast doubt and be suspicious of those whom Christ has purchased with his blood? If so, hear Paul, Galatians 5.15. If ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Second, the party spirit remedied. The party spirit remedied. So what is the cure for such an unchristian and dangerous spirit? Christ, once again, points the eyes and the fingers of his disciples away from others to themselves. To themselves. Ye are concerned, as though he said, about these others who love me, receive me, believe in me, and love the brethren, simply because they do not walk with us. Ye do err in that ye offend them and cause them to stumble. Beware, rather, look to your own individual selves. Then he continues in verses 43 through 44. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. If thy foot offend thee, cut it off. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than going whole into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. So rather, dear congregation, than taking a microscope and examining in depth 
whether or not the Christianity of others matches our own in every respect, because it couldn't possibly be genuine if it doesn't match us to a T, we ought rather to turn the microscope to ourselves, the New Testament teaches us, to examine ourselves and ensure that our religion does not exist simply in our minds, illusory, as a kind of doctrinal and intellectual creed and nothing else, separate from our heart, separate from our hands, but that it permeates and is reflected in all that we do, stemming from all that we are as humans. Christian theology's guilt, grace, and gratitude ought to be reflected in the Christian's head, heart, and hands. Of what use, dear congregation, is all of our theological propositions and stringent orthodoxy to historic documents and doctrine if we are not willing to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus? If we are not willing to crucify the flesh with the affections and lusts, if we are not willing to, through the Spirit, Paul says, mortify, that is, put to death the deeds of the body. What good is it to us if we are not willing to cut off and pluck out all those things that offend our Christian profession? Then, for all of our theological knowledge, for all of our delineations of orthodoxy and the right worship of God, we have gained nothing. 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 We go into life whole. We go into hell whole rather than life maimed. God is not a thing to be studied, but a person to be known, served, loved, and worshipped. The Christian serves God how? By loving him. That is, by offering up his body, his own body, all that he is in faith, by self-denial, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we've studied in Chapter 8 as well. Dear congregation, when we have in the church infighting over doctrinal nuances, it serves to affect two things. This is what it accomplishes. Two things. It takes our eyes off of the chief end of religion, namely to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And secondly, it causes the church at large to neglect the preaching of the gospel. She being too busy evangelizing herself on doctrinal particularities to go out and share the gospel with the lost. Dogma. Dogma, that word is so hated, but dogma is the core essentials of Christianity. Dogma are non-negotiable. The core central fundamentals without which you have no Christianity, i.e. dogma, are non-negotiable. If one rejects any of the Christian dogmas, they are not Christian. Doctrine, that is, the particular and systematic articulation of the implications of those dogmas, are what? For the church's aid in instruction, assurance, and piety. That's what they're for. That's why we classify it. That's why we write a confession. That's why we hold to it and study it and preach it and think about it and write about it. To aid in instruction, assurance, and piety. However, when doctrine is exalted as the sum and substance of true religion, it only serves to detract, as we see in our passage. 
The Christian life and the Christian calling, dear congregation, is a matter of life and death, of heaven and hell, of eternity. We have received Christ, have we not, as Christians? All Christians have. And have been brought from death into life. We are to preach his everlasting gospel, which is a matter of heaven and hell, death and life. Keeping this, this truth, what the gospel is, how urgent it is, how it goes throughout all of time, deals with the fundamentals of man's existence and where he shall end up, heaven or hell, life or death. Keeping this at the forefront of our minds serves to cure party spirits, which I believe is what Jesus is doing here. Richard Baxter said, quote, If we saw God and heaven and hell before us, do you not think it would effectually reconcile our differences and heal our unbrotherly exasperations and divisions? What abundance of vain controversies would it reconcile? The sight of God, Baxter says, would frighten us from contentious or uncharitable violence, end quote. So, dear Christian, we all have to ask this. Do we make much of doctrine, much of debate, much of controversy, but little of Christ, little of living unto him? Do you find your heart stirred more by controversy or more for living unto Christ, the precious one? Though there is infinitely more that can be said here in these verses regarding heaven, hell, the destiny of man, holiness, mortification, the Christian life. Yet I think we have said what we must in regards to this portion, this portion's connection to John's sectarian spirit. Namely, that the Christian should be most concerned with his own devotion to Christ, his own mortification, his own holiness, his own sanctification, how his Christianity is being seen and demonstrated in his hands and his heart and his head, rather than another believer's ignorance or, or error. Third, the true Christian spirit exalted. Jesus completes his correction of John with these words in verses 49 and 50. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. It's always one of these kinds of passages that we come across and just sounds strange. So strange to our modern mind. We don't, we don't really know what's going on here. But it's pretty simple when you actually take it holistically in light of biblical, historical, redemptive history laid out for us in the scriptures. Salt in the ancient world was both a cleansing agent, something that purified, and also a preservative. There is some dispute among interpreters on how to understand these two verses. But again, I think context makes it clear. The context of all these verses is the rebuke of Jesus to John about him saying these people are not with us. They must be understood then, therefore, in light of the spirit a Christian should have. Here's what a Christian should look like. A Christian should have a spirit of brotherly love, of charity, of grace over against the spirit that he should reject and mortify. That is, a a contentious spirit of controversy and sectarianism. Matthew Henry 
gives a helpful line of argumentation on how we should follow these verses and understand them. Notice, we see in the law of Moses concerning meat offerings in Leviticus 2.13 specifically that every sacrifice, God said through Moses, that every sacrifice was to be salted with salt. Why? It was just going to go be consumed, so it wasn't to preserve it. Well, it was supposed to be salted with salt because it was the food of God's table. It was food for God's table. And no flesh was to be eaten with salt or without salt. Now we know that the nature of man is what? Corrupt. It's corrupt. It's rotten. It's dead. And it's called the flesh. And therefore, if it is to be a sacrifice unto God, as we know it's called to be as Christians, then it must be salted. Therefore, our chief cons- if our chief concern as Christians is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to the grace of God, as it should be, Romans 12.1, so that it may be accepted as a living sacrifice unto God, it must be seasoned with salt, salted with salt. That is, our corrupt affections, dear congregation, our sinful, corrupt, rotten affections must be subdued, must be mortified, and we must have our souls within them a relish, a savor, that's what that means, of grace. This is why Paul says that the offering up or sacrificing of the Gentiles, he says this in Romans 15, 16, is to be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost, just as the sacrifices of ancient times were salted. True Christians, having this salt of grace, if you will, ought to be able to demonstrate that they actually do indeed have it, that they have salt in themselves, a living principle of grace in their hearts. That's what the salt is, which works out and, and destroys all corrupt temperaments. Everything in the soul that tends to corrupt and tends to add to putrefaction and rot. All those things that offend God, in other words. All those things that offend the Christian's own conscience. All those things which serve to offend other people, other believers in the world around us. Just as rotten meat is offensive to the mouth and the stomach, so too this rotten corruptions within us, the sinful nature within us must be salted, that is, cleansed, purified, destroyed, and preserved, so that these rotten corruptions do not stink unto the Lord in our offering, nor to our own consciences, nor to those around us. Our speech, the Apostle Paul says, must always be seasoned with grace, like salt. The grace must be like salt, seasoning our speech. What does he mean by that? That no corrupt, that is rotten, communication should come out of our mouth. That's not limited to cussing. People always want to make that just about cursing or cussing. That's so much more. What is this corrupt speech? Anything that offends God, offends conscience, offends neighbor. In our context, speaking against brethren. Speaking against brethren. Slandering them. Assaulting them. Rather, we must hate it. This corruption within us. As much as we would hate to put putrid meat in our mouths. That's what salt should be giving us these images of. As this salt of grace will keep our own consciences void of offense, so it will keep all of our interactions with others, dear congregation, to be without offense. To be without offense. That we may not offend any of Christ's little ones, but may be at peace with one another. 
We must not only have the salt of grace, but we must always retain the relish and savor of it, Matthew Henry writes. That is, the love and experience of it. For if salt lose its saltness, if a Christian revolt from his Christianity, Matthew Henry says, if he loses the savor of it, the enjoyment of it, the experience of it, and no longer be under the power and influence of his Christianity, the salt of grace, what can recover him? Wherewithal shall you season him, as Jesus says in Matthew 5.13? He's good for nothing now than to be thrown out. You are the salt of the earth. If salt lose its saltiness, it's good for nothing to be but to be thrown out and trampled under foot of men. In light of this, dear congregation, let us know the seriousness of this. The seriousness of this. That all who do not present themselves as living sacrifices to God's grace shall be made forever, instead of living sacrifices, dying sacrifices of judgment. Dying sacrifices to his justice rather than living sacrifices to his grace. And since they would not give honor to him, all those who reject the gospel and will not give honor to him will not be a living sacrifice unto God. One Puritan put it this way, that God will then therefore get honor upon him through his condemnation and damnation. They refuse to be salted with the salt of divine grace. Those who reject the gospel, they will not mortify their corrupt affections, that is. They will not take the gospel salve that is necessary to eat away the corruptions of the flesh. Therefore, in hell, they shall be salted with fire. With fire. Coals of fire shall be scattered upon them. As we read about in Ezekiel 10.2, as salt was upon the meat of the sacrifice, Ezekiel says. With all this in mind, dear congregation, those who will not be salted... With the grace of the gospel, we must understand the reality and weight of this. Those who reject the salt of the everlasting covenant, a monument of everlasting mercy in Christ Jesus, shall be, as Lot's wife, turned into a pillar of salt that is a monument of divine justice, divine wrath, Matthew Henry says. But, dear Christians, let us be moved to holiness to living unto God as a living sacrifice, acceptable in his sight, not simply by the severity and the judgment, the justice of God. That shouldn't be the only thing that motivates us, but by the sanctifying salt of the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ. That should motivate us to live unto him. That should cause us to love him. The true spirit, in closing, of of the Christian, the true spirit of the Christian is one of what? Brotherly love. Brotherly love. One that out of gratitude to God and a true love to him as, as imperfect as that love is in us as Christians, loves the brethren. Because it loves God. How shall we avoid a contentious and divisive spirit then? By focusing on those main truths, those main themes of the gospel. The true sum and substance of all religion. Redemption to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Fellowship and communion with God upon these very terms. The sad reality of the future state of those who reject the gospel, reject the Savior that God gave them. And by focusing, dear congregation, 
on our own experiential progress and religion rather than whether or not our brethren understand things exactly as we do. That's how we avoid a sectarian spirit. So, does your heart burn within you, dear Christian? Does your heart burn within you when you think of your precious Lord Jesus? Does your heart burn within you? Do you you long to be with him, as did Paul, the apostle? Are you often pulled off of your common thoughts and your common duties throughout your days, desiring to be with him in communion and prayer and worship and the reading of his word, the meditation of his excellencies? Do we ever feel that? Or are we like John here in this passage, finding ourselves establishing arbitrary standards for who really belongs to Christ or not, which Christ has not given us? He never told us that Arminians are not saved and only Calvinists are saved. He didn't. If we spent more time, dear congregation, giving glasses of water to our brethren and praying for their success in the gospel, we would not find ourselves so often at odds with our Lord Jesus Christ as John does here. Dear congregation, let us have gospel salt in ourselves and have peace one with another. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come before thee. We ask, O God, that we would love thee more. And Lord, that this love would manifest in us by the power of thy Holy Spirit and love to other Christians. Whatever creed they be of, whatever denomination they be of. Lord, that we would stand valiantly for thy truth, the fundamentals that we agree on, but also that we would stand for the doctrines of grace that was revealed to us in the scriptures. Lord, that a revival would break out in this country, in this world, people return to the true faith of the scriptures thou hast given us. That people would be brought to see the graciousness of salvation. People would be drawn to see the biblicalness of the work thou didst in the Reformation. But, O Lord, regardless, we only desire, and if it is not our only desire, make it our only desire to see, O God, Thy Son, Jesus Christ, lifted up, glorified, exalted, worshipped, praised, and adored by all men everywhere. We thank Thee, Lord, for this time. Pray, God, that us continue to apply Thy word to us. We receive the gospel daily as Thy people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.